electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Help now or pay up later if we fail. We have new details on First Republic's desperate pitch to save the bank. The window to act closing fast. Should the government step in? One of our guests says it may seem unfair, but the answer is yes. He joins us to explain why. Plus, the economy is like a car speeding down a cul-de-sac, says our market guest. It looks good right now, but there's nowhere to go. He brings two names he's buying as growth slows. And the U.K. is clearly closed for business. Harsh words from Activision after British regulators block its deal with Microsoft. We look at what happens next and what it means for other deal hopefuls. But first, today's markets and Dom Chu has those big numbers. I'm trying to get the vision of a car speeding down a (laughs) cul-de-sac out of my mind. There is nowhere to go. Anyway, Kelly, uh, the markets today are relatively stable after, of course, what was a bigger down day yesterday for the S&P 500, shedding about a percent and a half of its value. We're still below 4,100 for the S&P, 4,079, up about eight points right now. Uh, Just to kind of give you an idea, we were up 18 points at the highs of the session, down 10 at the lows. So we've been kind of going up and down here, but generally a more positive day for stocks overall. The Dow Industrial is just about flat. 33,511, the Nasdaq Composite, the real outperformer, because a lot of those tech earnings came out after the bell yesterday, up one full percent, 11,927 for the Composite Index. One other place, though, that's seen some real big market action, and not in a good way, is the solar energy stocks. Enphase Energy has shed about 25 percent of its value. The results came in quarterly, just pretty much beaten expectations, but it's guidance was what tanked a lot of that stock's movement here, coming in below analyst estimates for this current quarter. So Enphase Energy is off about 25%. That, of course, is dragging the entire complex down with it. The Invesco solar ETF ticker TAN is down about 5%. Solar Edge, first solar as well. So keep an eye on solar stocks. Not very, very happy these days for those investors. And then the stock of the day, it's, you can call it maybe the last of the most important regional bank reports to come out, and that's PacWest, Pacific West Bank Corporation, is up 15% right now. After the bell yesterday, they came out with an earnings report that really wasn't scrutinized for the headline numbers, but for the deposits. And they did show outflows, but more importantly, Kelly, uh, much like Western Alliance, PacWest says that in the first few weeks of this current month and quarter, they saw deposit inflows to the tune of around $700 million, allaying some investor fears. But, of course, the specter of the regional banks still very much in focus. PacWest is up 15 percent, but still, Kel, down two-thirds of its value over the last year. I'll send back. Yeah, they were trying to be much more transparent and proactive. Dom, thank you. And that's where we begin today. As you just heard, PacWest says it's seen deposit inflows over the past month, but a very different story for First Republic. Shares falling almost 50 percent yesterday after they reported a massive drop in their deposits. And today, the bleeding continues as we were below $5 on the equity at one point. This was a $147 stock in February. Now, new reporting from CNBC.com is shedding some light on First Republic's efforts to save itself. The pitch, help us now. 
now or pay more later if we fail. The reporter behind that story, Hugh Sun, is here with me for more uh, on that. We're also joined by veteran banking voice John Maxfield, who says the window to act is closing fast. And Ron Krzyzewski is the CEO of Stiefel Financial, and they've been hiring some commercial bankers who found themselves at the center of all of this bank turmoil. Welcome to all of you. Let's start with the news, Hugh. What's the latest on First Republic? Hey, Kelly, great to be with you. So we were able to shed some light on, on the uh, approach that First Republic's advisors would have in trying to save the bank, which is essentially, uh, you know, as, as uh, David Fair reported on Tuesday, the plan was basically to convince the banks who've already put in $30 billion into First Republic in the form of deposits to once again help out by, by overpaying, essentially, for bonds that are on First Republic's balance sheet. So paying higher than market value, which you know, on its face was a tough ask. Yeah. And so my question, uh, you know, to the advisors was, why would the banks go for it? And the answer is, you know, the uh, coercion that was uh, set to happen is basically uh, the pitch, you know, if you don't do this now and, and take a hit uh, to the tune of several billion dollars in total for all the banks, uh, then when this thing goes into receivership, uh, the FDIC special assessment fees that you're going to have to pay are could be the tune of $30 billion. Right. So it is in your financial interest to save First Republic now. That was First Republic's pitch. After you reported that story, the shares absolutely tanked. So if you're the big banks, you're going, it's obvious that the market hates the idea of us getting more involved here. They already feel probably like they've been tainted by giving the $30 billion, and now there's questions about whether they can even get that back. And now they're they're kind of looking at this yeah. like a lose-lose. Well, you know, I, I would have to say there are a couple observations. This is the kind of brinkmanship that needs to happen before, uh, you know, the players are finally impelled to move. Uh, earlier today, you know, uh, David also mentioned uh, the idea that the government might be reluctant to, to coerce, uh, you know, the, the big banks to actually act. And if that's the case, you know, the conversations I had with the bankers, the advisors to First Republic was, we need the government. We need them to actually corral all these players to, just like in 2008, 2009, Get, them, get the CEOs in a room together so we can sort of browbeat them into doing the right thing. And if they don't have the government to act, I don't know that their plan is going to actually get to fruition. Not just that, but look at what's happening in the marketplace today. Even as FRC keeps struggling, we see PacWest, we see the others acting resilient. Maybe we could describe it as that that's not going to galvanize either the private or the public sector to come to First Republic's rescue here because these are trial yeah. balloons. If it was bringing down the whole industry and the whole markets, that'd be a different story. I, I think I agree with what you're saying. You know, if there's bifurcation, if it seems like First Republic is isolated in this case, then, uh, then I would, it gives more ammunition to regulators to say, like, let this play out at least. And they want, it sounds like, to show that they are willing to let banks fail. I mean, wouldn't you say they won't even be explicit about what exactly is the situation with deposit insurance? Well, you know, they, they want optionality, you know, and they want to avoid the worst case scenarios. And if it is possible that this can be resolved without a, any whiff of uh, government, uh, you know, bailout, government assistance uh, and, and, and private market solution, you know, that's the preferred route. Yeah, real quickly, Hugh, and it's been great reporting. We really appreciate it. But how? give us a sense of the time frame here, you know? Yeah, I mean, certainly the sense I got from, uh, you know, the, the advisors is that they want to create a sense of urgency. Uh, they want this to happen soon. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, this is a degrading asset. You know, there, are, there is a talent flight. There is, uh, you know, the possibility that in the future quarters, they're just going to have quarterly losses. They're going to have uh, an upside down balance sheet if they don't get this fixed. So there's really a lot hanging on this and, and they don't want to let this 
you know, play out for much longer. Yeah, already it's been festering for quite some time. Hugh, thank you. I'll let you get back to it, our Hugh son. My next guest is a veteran voice in the banking industry who agrees, says the time to act on First Republic is now. The government maybe even needs to step in, even if it seems unfair or undeserved, because it's even less fair, quote, to the subject of, to subject the whole of society to the errors or infirmities of a few. Let's bring in John Maxfield. He's president of the Substack Maxfield on Banks. John, it's great to have you here today. Welcome. It's great to be with you, Kelly. I appreciate it. I can't imagine, you know, if you were a banker right now, you know these guys very well, all the other uh, heads of these banks. What should they be doing? Should they just sit back and watch this collapse? Should they be trying to come up with some kind of solution or help here? What are your, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a good question, Kelly, because, you know, when you look at kind of the, the crises in the past and how banks have responded, one thing you notice is that the banks that typically do well over time, like through the crisis, are those that do less as opposed to those that do more. You'll have like, you know, in the 1980s in the SNL crisis, when the savings and loans kind of went away from um, kind of that traditional mortgage stuff that they did and went into CRE and even in junk bonds, some of them, like that really caused a lot of problems later in that decade. And so like, you know, if you're a banker, like as hard as it is to do nothing, like it, that really is kind of the more prudent approach right now. Just try to like, you know, survive through this thing and then and see what it looks like on the other side. What about policymakers? Because, again, you know, we all look at this and say, obviously, people who are poor stewards of banks, you know, don't need to be bailed out from that every single time. But also bank panics are unique. Um, why do you think the onus might be on policymakers to do something here? And what should that something be? OK, so there have been nine major banking panics in the United States, if you go all the way back to the beginning. And one of the interesting things you'll see is when you kind of analyze the shape of these panics, you'll see almost every time a double bump. So failures, and then it'll kind of calm down again. And you'll have failures again, and it'll calm down again every single time. Uh, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893, like Great Depression, 1980s. Then those other eight crises, and my assessment of it is that you had a student of the Great Depression running the Federal Reserve at the time. And the Federal Reserve is, of course, the main instrument that you know attacks that kind of thing. And so he knew you have to come out as strong as you can and just deal with it all at once. And so what what you're having right now is we're setting ourselves up for like one of those double bump situations. So you needed to put time in between when First Republic, you know, when Silicon Valley failed, when Signature went down, and when. First Republic went down because that's not a one plus one plus one equals three type of thing. It's like a one plus one plus one equals like eight hmm. type of thing. It's like more of an exponential type of thing in terms of the impact that has on the confidence of consumers. So you had to put some time in between, but you don't want to put so much time in between where it starts kind of its own thing. And then you have another another bump. So you go kind of go back to that to that traditional shape that we've had in the past. It's a great point. And to a lot of people, it, it does feel like we're at one of those junctures where um, we, so when you look at the equity today, and I mentioned this with Hugh a moment ago, a lot of the rest of the regional banks are, you know, I'll, I'll say in air quotes, fine, while First Republic continues to weaken. Does that suggest that there's confidence in the marketplace that we don't need a bigger regulatory response here? I mean, I don't know what it suggests, Kelly, but my guess, and it's just a guess, is that what it means is that, I mean, everybody who knows about banking knows the First Republic. I mean, that's kind of a story that's been written. Um, I mean, if you look at, I mean, it's, it's lost, it lost $100 billion in deposits. You know what I mean? It's got $70 billion in extra assistance from the government, that $30 billion from those banks. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's in a tight spot. And so everybody knows that like, you know, it, it's not in like fear of like a huge run, 
Um, so, and, and everybody kind of knows where it's going to go. So I don't think it's a huge surprise. Maybe, maybe that's why, but, um, but I think everybody is kind of like, just kind of like sitting and, and kind of waiting it out at this point in the banking industry. Well, let me bring up one point though. That's that I think this is a really interesting point. So for a long time, one of the conversations in banking has been that, you know, deposits are sticky, deposits are sticky. They're not going to leave the banks. Right. But then when technology came in, people were like, oh no, no, no. They're going to now leave because technology will facilitate that to happen. Well, it wasn't until just last month that these banks in rural communities in smaller metropolitan areas started to actually see that that impact where if they typically they could have six additional months hmm. after rates increased to increase their rates before they lost depositors. But this time it was immediate. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic that that's going on in the banking uh, industry right now. And may help explain why we haven't seen a lot of recovery and a lot of share prices uh, since SVB collapsed and this all came to light. John, great for your perspective today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Kelly. You can read a lot more Maxfield on banks uh, on John's Substack. My next guest could be one of the places that sees a business lift from the banking turmoil. Let's get to an exchange exclusive with Ron Koshevsky, the chairman and CEO of Stiefel Financial. Uh, Ron, you've hired dozens of bankers from SVB. You've got an eye towards building out that early stage growth business. You guys, despite what John was just saying, you guys, or James was just saying, you guys have been pretty proactive here. Well, of course. I mean, look, first of all, I'm not sure I agree completely with what was just said. You remember, Kelly, we had two banks fail out of 4,700 banks. Uh, the two were rather spectacular fails. And, of course, First Republic is having issues. But the issues are, are pretty well known. They got long fixed rate securities and had a lot of uninsured deposits. And so let's just not, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, there are some things I think need to be done uh, with respect to some policy. But with, regarding Stiefel, look, uh, Silicon Valley's venture business was a very good business. That's not what got him in trouble. What got him in trouble was risk management on, on a mismatch. But uh, we're excited. We've hired a number of, you know, more than 20 uh, bankers. We've already been in the venture uh, banking business. And it's highly, highly synergistic with our investment bank and our wealth management. So we see opportunity. All right. And with that said, what about the broader questions about profitability, you know, credit? So even if we just said, okay, is the deposit issue contained? And obviously, Stiefel's a little unique in that. You're not, you're not like one of those regional banks. But even if we said that issue's contained, what about the bigger picture? You know, what are earnings going to look like three, six, nine, 12 months out? Well, first of all, we are in a very unique situation with respect to this whole question of deposit cost. I mean, look, the the difference between the six month and the ten year is 150 basis points inverted. It, that is a that's a unique situation, and I think when we get back to a normal yield curve, there'll be less focus on this. I think the bigger issue, Kelly, though, is that. What this has done is it has hurt the confidence of the safety of deposits in the regional mid-sized banks. And that's where I think the issue is. And what that is, is there is no question in my mind that the playing field in banks is heavily tilted to the too big to fail banks. They have implicit deposit insurance. And I think what you saw was everyone said, oh, I got to move my money to a big bank. That needs to be dealt with because that is the bigger issue than what we're seeing today on upside down balance sheets. Sure. And I mean, again, this goes back to a question. Even yesterday, one of our uh, analysts was saying, you know, he's interested in, in owning them maybe too big to fail banks. So there's so much 
um, sort of gray area right now about what exactly kind of backstop we're talking about and where does it apply. And we all know the truth just depends on the kind of deposit flight we still may or may not see in the weeks and months to come. Well, no, what you look, look, the the local economies across the United States are based upon the midsize and regional and local banks. Those banks uh, and many of them are uh, the foundation, are business deposits. And, and those business deposits, by, by definition, are more than $250,000. And so we have to find a way. I'm not for government intervention ever, but the government has intervened because those deposits are viewed as essentially guaranteed at too big to fail banks and not so at regional mid-sized banks. That needs to be fixed. Otherwise, the next crisis is going to be even more of an emphasis on where should my deposit be. And those deposits need to stay in our local community banks. So you do think that business deposits or whatever people want to call them, commercial transactional deposits specifically, should have full FDIC backing? Is there any up to any number? I do. And I, and I think that I think so some of my big bank colleagues will probably get mad at me for saying this, but they need to pay their fair share of the FDIC premium because today they don't have to pay because they have an implicit guarantee. So I absolutely do believe that business deposits need to be insured across the industry, and everyone should then compete for those deposits based on local dynamics, service, and competitive rates, not the fact that, oh, it's insured at a big bank and it's not insured here. It's interesting because, you know, we were just having a conversation about the government kind of needing to step in here, and, you know, I think that the question is, in even what you're saying is, is kind of that they do need to make clear what the rules are. Right. That no one's saying, okay, step up here and provide, you know, unlimited bailouts. But what there seems to be a need for is for them to spell out the rules of engagement right now in in which deposits are explicitly backed and which aren't. And until they do something even like that, it, it feels like there could still be problems. But, but, Kelly, the government has intervened. Everyone believes that at the too-big-to-fail banks, their deposits are insured. Look no further than Credit Suisse. That yeah. got resolved because Credit Suisse was too big to fail. And so government has intervened because the deposits are implicitly guaranteed. So they need to level the playing field, with, and I say with respect to business deposits at mid-sized regional and community banks. They're safe anyway. They're, they're, I'm not saying they're not safe at these banks. They are. But when you get times of crises, then people question uh, the credit quality of a mid-sized versus a too-big-to-fail. And that's just simply not fair. Yeah. Ron, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay. Appreciate it very much. Ron Krzyzewski is the CEO of Stiefel. Coming up, he coined one of our favorite analogies this year, saying the economy is like a car speeding down a cul-de-sac. If it's true, how should you invest ahead of an inevitable slowdown? He joins me next alongside Michael Santoli, who joins us here on set. Plus, Meta's year of efficiency seems to be going well, up 76% since Jan 1. Is it still a buy? We'll ask one analyst and get the trades on Caterpillar and ServiceNow ahead of their results. And as we go to break, let's get a quick look at the markets. The Dow's negative by 56 points, but the S&P is positive. The Nasdaq's up 1% helped by a big gain in Microsoft today. Uh, healthcare softer, though. The 10-year yield, 345. The exchange is back after this. 
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. While the market debates whether the economy is still running hot or starting to cool down, my next guest says it's like being in a car speeding down a cul-de-sac. Looks good right now, but there's no place to go. In this environment, he's looking at stocks that are already oversold. Joining me now with some picks is Chris Crisanti. He's chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. And CNBC senior markets commentator Michael Santoli is here as well. How do we steal you from the New York Stock Exchange? Once in a while, I like to... Make a little bit of an appearance over here. Glad to do it. Yeah, well, a day like this especially. Yeah. Do you have any first-level thoughts, Mike, about the kind of market structure this afternoon with First Republic doing what it's doing but everything else in a holding pattern? It's a very split market continues to be. Um, Microsoft's gain is accounting for more than the entire S&P gain at wow. the moment. Um, the regional banks index has been very conspicuous in not being able to rally much uh, to date, although it is up a little bit today. So there's still this sense out there that uh, FRC is its own situation, uh, but it doesn't really resolve the overall question, which is this very stop-start nature of the economic data and what's already been priced in. A lot of the cyclicals have already taken some pain. It's not clear if they've taken enough. Before I turn to Chris real quickly, do you think Microsoft is up as much as it is because of earnings or because they maybe killed the Activision deal? Um, it's mostly earnings. And it's mostly the excuse that analysts found in the comments after the, uh, the earnings report to raise estimates a little bit. And I think they're getting a huge growth premium because growth is scarce right now. And, you know, the AI energy is still running through that stock. So I, I think Activision, keep in mind, only it's a, it's a $70 billion proposed deal on a $2 trillion market cap True. company for, for Microsoft. Well, Chris, you've got MAI capital management. This could be very valuable uh, over the next couple of years as this AI craze really picks up. But where are you looking in the market specifically right now for opportunities? Well, well, as you mentioned, Kelly, it's a really tough market. I, I do think the economy is like a, like a car speeding down a cul-de-sac with, with really no place to go with Things really, I think, set to slow down over the summer. So what we take, instead of buying broadly or expecting growth in the usual areas, let's find the good companies that have already gotten kind of the stuff and knocked out of them. And, and we like two stocks in two really quite different areas, one in healthcare and, and, and one in housing. So um, the first one is Danaher, which got absolutely creamed yesterday. Yeah. So put it into a zone for us to buy. So it was down 9% yesterday on what I would call a, a COVID hangover. Danaher made lots of stuff for testing for COVID. Obviously, that's that business is basically falling off a cliff, you know, thank God. And But, uh, you know, this is a short-term couple of quarters issue. By year end, it should be fixed. Danaher provides 
incredibly uh, complex stuff for the, both the testing and the development of drugs, and those are getting more complex as the years go by. So it's a chance to buy Danaher right now at, at a low that you haven't seen since it became a pure play in healthcare about seven years ago. Wow, it had been you know a, a big favorite stock lately, and and I love how you, you know a few people say it's so bad that we were excited to buy it. What about Black and Decker too, where there's lots of concerns about where we are kind of in that cycle? Sure. Sure. And as you know, and on this show, I've, we've talked before about buying the housing stocks now mm -hmm. almost a year ago. And we bought them because when interest rates started to go up and mortgage rates started to go up, uh, they got the tar knocked out of them. So they were down 40, 50, 60 percent. But lo and behold, people are still buying houses, even with mortgages at 6 percent, by the way, like they used to do for decades before the great financial crisis. Uh, and, and we think the same thing will have happen to Stanley Black & Decker. Stock is down from 225 to about 80. Uh, they're losing money now because they have a glut, believe it or not, of too many hammers, too many drills. Uh, but that glut will get cleared. And, um, you know, it's a 150-year-old company. It's not that complicated a business. They know what they're doing. They should be nicely profitable by year end. And we think it's off to the races then. And again, a 20-year low valuation. Here's a company that, even if we go into recession, has already fallen. Are you exiting the home builder trade, which I hope, I don't even have to ask you or remind people what a great call it was because we talked about it nonstop for a few weeks back last spring <laughs> and early summer. Now it's on a, such a tear that it's such a consensus long, and it feels to me like that's when you'd want to uh, be a seller. You're absolutely right, Kelly. Um, and it's fun because when I'm on the show recommending something, I know it might be a good idea if I get an incredulous look from from some from from you or some of the viewers <laughs> saying, "What are you doing that for?" So, but now not so incredulous with the home builders. They, they've come back nicely. But you're absolutely right. We've started to trim them, and we're you know we're looking for the the new new thing. And, and for example, Stanley Black and Decker could be something like that. Michael. Give you a quick last word. Yeah, it's it's real interesting about the the mixed signals. It's very hard to find. There's going to be a clinching argument between recession now and we're fine. Uh, and the home uh, housing industry is, is, is one of the reasons for that, right? It's really hard for the economy to fall apart if housing demand is taking higher. Durable goods today, I saw numbers saying it's consistent with a 4 to 5% nominal GDP. Wow. Now, who knows if that lasts. Uh, you know, to add on to the car speeding down a cul-de-sac, we don't know how long the cul-de-sac is. Yep. And it's one of those old cars where when it reads E on the fuel gauge, you still have some time <laughs> because it's not actually empty. And so I think that's what the market's struggling with. You know, who's better at analogies than Mike and Chris? Thank you both. Uh, your mid-afternoon word, Mike. Uh, for more, by the way, you can tune in tonight for Market Ideas, 6 p.m. Eastern for our special Taking Stock by hosted by Mr. Santoli himself. Uh, Chris Grisanti, always appreciate your time. Still ahead, Activision shares tank 11% after a UK regulator blocked Microsoft's acquisition of the video game maker. And that's not all. Activision released their earnings a day earlier than expected as well. We'll break it all down for you as Microsoft flirts with its best day since March of 2020. Its 8% gain makes it far and away the best performer in the Dow today, while healthcare is dragging the blue chips down. Merck, UNH, and Amgen all underperforming. We're back after this. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden meeting with South Korean President Yoon Suk at the White House. The leaders celebrated the 70-year-long alliance between their countries. Yoon's visit follows the largest U.S.-South Korean joint military exercises in years. The country is also stepping up their security coordination with Japan, holding trilateral defense talks in Washington earlier this month. One day after President Biden announced his re-election campaign, former Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson formally announced his bid for the presidency today. In his speech, Hutchinson touched upon plans to address the economy, crime, and border security as he joins a growing list of Republicans eyeing that GOP nomination. And General Motors plans to stop production of its Chevy Bolt electric vehicle by the end of this year. Although the Chevy Bolt EV and its larger utility version make up the vast majority of the country's a company's electric vehicle sales, the battery cells in the cars use an older design compared with GM's newer electric vehicles. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, see you soon. Thank you. Still ahead, Meta's only 5% below its 52-week high. Is ServiceNow the name to own in the cloud space? And Caterpillar's been a bellwether for economic growth. Should you buy the name at the risk of getting bulldozed with its earnings later on? It's all ahead in Earnings Exchange, Dow's down 80. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're halfway through a massive week for earnings. It's kind of a mixed bag. Let's get the action, the story, and the trade on the next key names that are on deck. And we'll start with Meta, which has been on a tear since bottoming out last year. It's up 76% in 2023 alone. But options are still pricing some fireworks tonight with about a 12% move up or down post report. Monetizing reels, competing with TikTok, the metaverse pivot, and an ad spending read through after a mixed result for rival Alphabet. These are all key. Here with more is Yusuf Scully, Truist Securities Global Head of Internet and Media Research. Uh, Yusuf, Meta, how much life does it have left in it? Uh, still a fair amount of life, Kelly, and thanks for having me on. So we think tonight is going to be interesting. I think overall it's going to be pretty muted, somewhat similar to what we saw out of Google. But I think when you parse out the numbers, what you'll see is the rate of decline has definitely improved. There is a chance we may even see them uptick a little bit on a reported basis. But even without that, this is really has become more of a, a cost containment story. And we need to get to that $10 EPS a share for this year as quickly as we can. And I think management will have to speak to how they get there. I mean, we all agree, and, and maybe it's oversimplistic, but that the stock has rallied on cost cuts, but they can't keep cutting all the way to the bone, right? So is as that narrative runs out, is there more risk for the shares? Well, I think, look, the stock is trading around nine times cash flow, around 17 times PE. So even though the stock is up 70 percent, it is still not expensive. It's down 80 percent. It was down 80 percent, uh, you know, through last year before it started, you know, resuming its increase. But clearly we need to see top line reacceleration. I think some of that it's within their control with things they're doing with TikTok. I think, uh, sorry, with Reels, I think they've uh, started gaining share back from TikTok, both in terms of engagement of users and even the number of people using the service. So that's really important. Uh, it would be great to see some dollar number associated with revenues from uh, from Reels. Last year it was $3 billion. We think they're tracking to about $4.5 billion plus. So that, yeah. that would be really important. And clearly the macro has a lot to do with all of these ad-driven names. And so... At some point, hopefully later this year, we should start getting some improvement in the macro. And with it, uh, Meta should 
uh, being one of the best beneficiaries. Yeah, the shares, by the way, even today are up 2% after Google's quarter. If you could just give me an additional word on that. I mean, what was it in particular that I think is going over so poorly with the market with Google today? Is it just the Microsoft comp? Is it what they said about ad or cloud? I mean, what, what to you is kind of the big, um, you know, I don't want to call it um, disappointment, but something approaching that. Well, I think the rhetoric, the, the rhetoric uh, around the name today has been around them losing a little bit of market share in search to Microsoft, right? Microsoft reported last night, I think they talked about 9 or 10% growth in, in search. Uh, Google grew 2%. So just looking at the numbers will tell you that clearly Microsoft is gaining a little bit. But we're talking about Microsoft owning single-digit percentage market relative to uh, Google with 90% plus, so clearly it's a lot easier to move the needle on the lower share uh, percentage. But I think that's temporary. I think Google is now leaning in very aggressively with AI, and I think over the next you know, few quarters, Google will start getting some of that share back. Um, but, but I think that has been the primary driver of, uh, of the shares not doing too well today. That's a great point. They seem to be aggressive. I keep getting emails saying, here's how to use BARD and try it with this and try it with that. And Microsoft too, by the way, goes to show how much is riding on this. Yusuf, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Yusuf Scully from Truist. Let's move on to ServiceNow, also on deck with results as the $90 billion software company has been on a steady uptrend for almost a year itself now and up 15% since Gen 1. That said, analysts might be a little concerned about conservative guidance here from cost-cutting across the tech space. So with the trades, we turn to Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial's founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. This is one of those stocks a little bit under the radar, Jeff, but a solid performer. What would you, what would you do with it here? You're right, Kelly, and I want to be a buyer here, but this tech teenager, we all we've been doing is talking about the tech darlings, the mega cap tech giants and Microsoft, Amazon, we we're just talking about Meta, but this is a very under the radar, knocking down $100 billion in market cap, and this is you know, truly a workflow automation company, and you're seeing it continue to grow. From an earnings perspective, the last two years, Kelly, you're absolutely right. They're earning per share estimates. They've hit them and exceeded 100% of the time. They've also hit their revenue estimates by 88% the last two years. So expectations, you're seeing the stock move higher by $10 today. Expectations are for them to deliver once again. However, Kelly, I want to buy this for a trade because it dripped under the 50-day moving average. It's still above its 2-day moving average. But if I'm talking longer term in this space, I want to own Oracle. That is the big brother. Three times the market cap. And we've seen Oracle really move higher over the last couple of years where you've seen ServiceNow be a little bit stagnant on a 12-month perspective. Both of these names you think could be vulnerable to slow down enterprise spend. It's not a perfect comp, but obviously Seagate uh, has people a little nervous. Yeah, I think that's a great question, but I think ServiceNow specifically is less discretionary. I know we have to kind of really, you know, um, you know, split hairs here, but when you look at what the spend is, I think ServiceNow is less discretionary. I think Oracle is going to continue to grow as well, but ServiceNow, do not count them out. This tech teenager is growing up. All right. Let's turn to then, uh, do we call it a boomer uh, stock, Caterpillar? The industrials giant is on tap tomorrow before the bell with shares down 9% so far this year. Got supply chain, recession commentary, credit tightening, all key to watch. Jeff, what do you think is the trade here? I think first and foremost, you have to be in the camp, which I am firmly in, that we are not having an imminent recession. So I want to be a buyer of Caterpillar. You talked about being bulldozed on the stock going in earnings. Yes, there's high expectations. You're seeing implied volatility, really uptick for this specific earnings season because, to your point, you've seen the stock jump about 91%. And, and that's a three-year perspective. It's up 91%. So here we are kind of you know, at all-time highs, not too far off. I think there's expectations for there to be a delivery. But I think you have to understand that this stock is 
it's time to dig in. And why I want to approach this earnings season a little bit differently, I want to sell puts here, Kelly. At $220, you can sell a put going out one month, collect $7.60. You're defining your risk. And if I get put to this stock, I'm collecting that $7.60 in premium. It puts me owning the stock under the 200-day moving average. You tell me I can own Caterpillar under the 200-day moving average, I'm in. Fair enough, but I look at it and I see we've got commentary about a freight recession. We've got commodity prices ebbing. You know, we've got demand slowdown, uh, you know, here in the U.S. on the manufacturing side. So it just feels like a and maybe your point is that's already priced in. Well, it may not be priced into your point. I think it's very fair that you bring that up. And that's the one dynamic that you really can. And that's the beauty of having buyers and sellers in the Caterpillar stock. But I think the Forex headwinds substantial. We are seeing supply chain disruptions. But at the end of the day, we really can't measure these. And I'm going to fall on the side of the fence that I believe China is reopening. I don't think we're going to have continued escalation in our attention. So I think a name like stock or a name like Caterpillar, that's a stock you want to own. It's very tangible. It's a big name. And if you do see the global economy continue to move forward, people are going to continue to need, need their equipment. All right. We'll leave it there. Jeff, thank you so much today. Should be another Here's rowdy best, afternoon. Jeff Kilberg, we appreciate it. Still ahead, regulators in the UK blocking Microsoft's purchase of Activision Blizzard. Activision shares falling hard on the news. Activision CEO says this is far from the final word on this deal. Is that true? We'll look at what's next with ATVI down 11%. And don't miss CNBC's newest show, Last Call with Brian Sullivan. You can catch it weeknights here at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. The biggest deal in the markets right now is in danger of falling apart, with UK regulators blocking Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. ATVI shares are down more than 11% right now, while Microsoft's are surging in part because of its earnings last night. Both are planning to appeal the decision for what it's worth. Steve Kovac is here with the details, and what comes next, Steve? <laughs> oh, boy. So there is this appeal, but the kind of the, the sentiment out there right now is the CMA doesn't really like appeals, and they tend to just stick with the original decision. Therefore, it, I mean, it's it's pretty much done, but it looks like it's not going to happen now. Is it? And I've heard people who were in this, you know, ARBs who were in this deal before it happened saying, OK, I mean, let, let me put it differently. The U.S., we at least have the court system, right, right. Where, that you can use to. And the FTC suing through that right now. Exactly. But in the U.K., is, is there any similar opportunity to go to court over this or is it simply it to go back like to the no, regulator? It's, it's yeah. just back to the regulator, do the appeal. They say no. And here we are. $3 billion break fee. And look, this is not what Microsoft, obviously they didn't want this, but this is also not what they're expecting because just a, several weeks ago, the CMA really uh, took out a huge chunk of their argument against this deal. That made Microsoft quite optimistic that they maybe it'll approve, but with some conditions, which they've already shown they're happy to accept conditions. They've already gone out of their way to make those deals with Nintendo, with NVIDIA, to say, to show regulators, look, we're willing to work with you guys. We're willing to address these concerns before you can even come at us with them. And it's interesting that we had reporting this week from different industry publications saying that they thought this deal was now close to getting done. The other the market problem, did, too, is getting close to that 95 bucks a share. True, that, yeah. which it never quite approached. And now, of course, it's back well below that. The other thing you have to wonder sometimes is whether global regulators are kind of on the same page. You know, if the U.S. knows, well, if we block it, technically that can be appealed through the court system. Right. If the U.K. blocks it, well, that works for us. It effectively does our job, but there's really no appeal. And Microsoft was almost certainly ready if they got the approval today, accept any conditions, if there were any, hope next month that the EU approves it. It seems like EU is already leaning towards that. Mm. And then just move ahead and they can go through the courts and say, look, we're going to buy the company anyway. They have until mid-July or so to make this deal happen. And then they can say, hey, FTC, just come at us. Come sue us. But we, we already did it. Your counterparts overseas already said it's fine. Is there any likelihood they would try to carve out the U.K. 
in this deal? I, I don't think so. I think it's all or nothing. That's really the impression I'm getting. And, you know, they're, they're running out of options, really. It's like, what else can they offer them that they haven't already offered? That's the real question. And the big picture here is is a couple of things from the specific deal. It appears to be denied on a bit of a hypothetical uh, That's, presupposition. Yes. Yes. So there's that on the one piece. And then people also saying, how important is it that the video game industry remains frozen in time the way it is right now? Right. right? So a, a couple of, of things that didn't feel like there was direct consumer harm. And, and, and that's the thing. At first, they were talking about consumer harm in the console business, and then they dropped that. They kind of realized, oh my God, that's not a great argument here. So they're making this cloud argument, which is a very small part of how people play video games today, streaming games like you would stream a Netflix movie. Microsoft does have that product. It's very small, but the argument the CMA says, it's this could become big one day. This might be a thing. This, and Microsoft is more positioned right now to be dominant there. And if they buy Activision, even more so, and it's unfair to others. But look, it's just such a small part of the gaming market. It's just hard to predict that. Microsoft may be the leader now. That doesn't guarantee in the future. Sony PlayStation has a similar offer. And same so. for Activision. It's a very cyclical right. business or, or hit-driven business. And Just like the movies. Right, exactly. Yeah. And by the way, Activision, a big uh, Warren Buffett holding as well. But yeah. even here at Comcast, I mean, there had been rumors, there are reports that NBC was going to be merged with EA, right? So now that we're kind of winding the clock back, if we are, could we see new strange kinds of combinations come back to the fore? That's what I was wondering. Not even strange combinations, but you got to wonder if these publishers want to get even bigger because what a lot of the platforms like Microsoft are doing and Sony are doing is they have these subscription services where they offer, you know, a bundle of hundreds of games. And so you can imagine maybe a Take-Two and an Activision trying to get together or a Take-Two and an EA trying to get together to leverage that kind of Except that now service. it sounds like no deals will happen, period. Yeah, it's, it's especially, <laughs> yeah. And look, there's that anti-big tech sentiment. Here's a big tech giant coming in, trying to do their biggest deal in history. Right. They're going to, uh, the knee-jerk reaction from regulators is to say no, no matter how solid their argument is. Absolutely. Steve, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, Steve Kovac. Don't miss Activision Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick on Squawk Box tomorrow in a first on CNBC interview. That'll be around 8 a.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, if you want a real-time snapshot of how the consumer is doing, look no further than this stock right here, up 10% so far in 2023. But can the gains keep going as recession risks rise? We'll talk about that next. Welcome back, everybody. Visa was our mystery stock, the largest payment network in the U.S. It beat on second quarter earnings last night. It's a real-time window into the consumer with its name on over 50% of all credit cards in circulation. Here's what the CFO had to say during the call. We think the consumer is still uh, in good shape. Um, As we said, spending across most categories, other than a couple I mentioned, like fuel and some retail goods price-cutting, very strong across services, strong across travel and entertainment, strong in non-discretionary. Uh, so, yes, um, that's how we feel. Well, Visa's overall payments volume rose 10 percent from a year ago, uh, while it's more lucrative cross-border volume jumped 24 percent. Huh. That's just what my next guest was talking about. Joining me to dig through these results, Lisa Ellis is partner and senior equity analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. Welcome. Thank you for joining me here. Hi. And I remember when we were talking about this a year ago, it you know, still felt like kind of in the depths of the pandemic. And you said, just wait. When people start traveling again, cross-border payment volumes, like that was your bull case. And here it is playing out. Yeah, absolutely. And we still have a little room to go. It's been a big year, but um, uh, Visa yesterday, their cross-border travel volumes were actually still up almost 60% year on year. 
total cross-border international spending up about 30 percent year on year. And that's really what drove the beat. You know, they beat both on top line and bottom line because that is very lucrative, high margin revenue as well when it comes in. MasterCard, have they reported yet? They come in tomorrow morning. Okay. Um, and we're expecting similar results from MasterCard. You know, the yeah. two of them, during the whole blockchain DeFi kind of boom, there was a moment I remember asking you about it, saying, well, wait a minute, could they finally be disintermediated, right? Could the stock duopoly of the 2010s be coming to an end here? How did they end up defending their core business? Or did that tide just recede as the Fed tightened and kind of crypto became less interesting and maybe those who were hoping to disrupt didn't quite make it across the finish line? Um, well, what, what they've done pretty effectively over the last couple of years is really separate Separate the core payment infrastructure um, from the value-added services that they provide on top of that. Things like fraud detection, things like those alerts you get to, their, to your phone, um, you know, spending management, all of the kind of consumer protections around your cards. Hmm. And they've, they, you'll hear more and more from them talking about value-added services, et cetera, because what they're doing is they're separating kind of how they add value from that core underlying infrastructure, which is being modernized um, but through things like blockchain, really stable coin networks, CBDCs, or even just through some of the you know, newer networks that like the Fed is rolling out called FedNow. It's coming out later this year. So we are seeing that modernization mm -hmm. in that underlying infrastructure, but they're really kind of pulling their services up on top of that. It's interesting. It reminds me of Apple a little bit in the App Store saying, you know, you want to come through us despite the cut, you know, that we're taking because we'll make sure that these apps are safe, basically, and it's not going to be malware and mm -hmm. things like that. So just going back to the kind of bread and butter mm -hmm. business for a second, they've been raising fees a lot. Obviously, it's caused a lot of I notice it more than ever. People putting up signs about surcharges and passing it on. Um, how much more can they raise price there, do you think? Um, yeah, it's always a, a <laughs> debate question um, because the reality is, uh, you know, cards are ubiquitous. Consumers want to use them. We're not going to get away from that uh, at the same time. And the more you're buying things online or even through your mobile phone, there's actually a lot more fraud, about five times the level of fraud online than there is in store. So they are actually adding more value. But, wow. you know, we, we I think we'll see sort of a balancing out. There was a lot of pent up. If you recall, early in the pandemic, they had some pricing changes planned. Then they held off on those um, for two years, actually. And so we're just sort of seeing that catching up. Got it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And it's, I, that's why people feel like inflation's getting worse sometimes, even though the, the headlines moderating. I guess more of an observation than anything else, but looking back through Visa during 2008, I mean, as late as April, they were saying the consumer looks fine. We see no sign of a looming downturn. Um, I worry about that a little bit when I hear their commentary, which is to say, OK, we know things are great right now. And it is reassuring because other indications some, sometimes say March was a bad month, but they're saying it was fine, but they can't really see around the corner. Yeah, you're right. They're, I mean, they're seeing just the real-time updates. I guess in certain categories, maybe they get a little bit of a forward look because you buy things like airline tickets months in advance, et cetera. But, um, you know, but as you said, six months ago when they gave their fiscal year guidance and said, hey, we think the consumer's doing fine, they scared everyone. Um, but the reality is here we are six months later and they are beating, on, they, you know, they've now beat two quarters in a row on top line and that consumer is chugging right along. Little bit of a bifurcation though I might highlight, the more affluent consumer is still spending strong on travel, entertainment, all those, you know, yeah. um, 
Taylor Swift tickets, et cetera. <laughs> but they, they are starting to highlight that they're seeing some trading down hmm. in some of the lower income categories. A lot more quick service restaurant yeah. as opposed to fine dining, um, Walmart, you know, versus the more upper end retail. And that jives what we heard from McDonald's uh, somewhat yeah. as well. Lisa, always great to dive in with you. Thanks for your time. Terrific. Thanks, See you tomorrow. Lisa Ellis with Moffitt and Nathanson. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.